So we're wrapping up today the uh, the series of messages we've been uh, going through as we looked at these signs of life. Our district superintendent, Carlo Rappinet, identified six signs of life, and um, we're finally going to stop looking at these uh, signs of life, at least for a little bit. Um, uh, the the signs of life, these vital signs, these these indicators of a healthy congregation that we've been looking at for the last uh, six weeks, and now we're going to wrap it up today. Um, they're the, uh, the these are the things that that as you as you look at these and you say, is is my church healthy in this area? Is my church a welcoming church, an engaging church, and so forth? So, uh, uh, just to quickly review, and these are all online, so you can listen to them there. But engaging is the idea that the church is most effective not when it's in in a building like this, but when it's out in the world. When when we're engaging the world out in the world, when we when we um, uh, are the church in our schools and in our homes, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, that, that we are most effective when we're actually out in the world. And uh, because a lot of us are um, uh, familiar with bad examples of evangelism, we don't want to do that. But Jesus gives us a model that's actually pretty easy. It's to go out in the world, to make relationships, to, to build relationships with people, uh, to bring healing into those relationships, um, sometimes because we need to change, because we, we aren't capable of having a good relationship with the people uh, until we've changed. So to bring healing into those relationships, and then finally to tell them about Jesus. When they say, why are you doing this? You know, what are you, you, know, what are you here for? Then we can talk about Jesus uh, in a different light since we have a relationship. So that's engaging. We've talked about welcoming. Uh, the idea of welcoming is as you go out, as you build those relationships... Uh, people, when you finally get to the part about telling about Jesus, some of them are going to say, uh, thanks, I don't need any. But some people are going to say, thanks, I've got some questions about Jesus. And maybe you know the answers. Maybe you can tell them, but maybe you can't. And what we learned is that the way to respond when people ask questions we don't have the answers for is to say, I don't know. Come and see. And the problem with that is sometimes we belong to churches where before we can say that, we have to say, but first I have to take you to coffee. And explain everything that's going to happen because it's kind of, there's going to be some things in my church that are pretty weird. And Carlos said, we want to be a welcoming church. We want to be a church where people can, can come in and be greeted and not kind of have to try to decode a bunch of weird Christianese. So, so we want to be a welcoming church. And the, what we learned is that the way we can be welcoming is to treat everybody as if they were Jesus. He says, that's the way I want you to do it. He says, when you when you welcome people, I'm going to treat that as if you were welcoming me. And so the strategy we developed was to be over the top, to be gracious, to be, um, to be uh, uh, outdoing ourselves in terms of how we welcome people. So that's what we learned about welcoming. And then we talked about discipling. Discipling is the idea that... that once you've once you've come to our church, you will fall in love with us, and we will immediately put you to work because we've got a long list of things we want to accomplish. And churches often do that, uh, and that's uh, exactly backwards. That our role as a church should not to be to squeeze you dry and figure out what you can do for us, but actually to pour into you. To disciple people is to help them move from that come and see place to where uh, God wants them to be, which is to come and die, to become like Jesus. To be people who who uh, live not for themselves but for God. So to move from come and see to come and die, and that's not automatic. You get to go to heaven, but it's not automatic that you will move along that trajectory. And so our goal as a church is to help you move along that goal 
by helping you with disciplines, the spiritual disciplines we've talked about before. And then, as you are growing in Christian maturity, as you have put into practice those, dis- those disciplines, then we can ask you to serve. Or better yet, you can say to us, how can I serve? So we talked about serving in the church, and what we learned is that the, that, um, the, the ministers, the people in visible leadership like me at the, who stand up at the beginning of the church uh, service or whatever, that we are ad ministers. Our goal is to be like outfitters, to help you do the work of ministry, to help you find the place where you can fit in. But we learned that there's a, there's a quick technique you can, you can do. If you don't know where you would fit in, where you're gifted, then what you can do is you can just begin. You can just do it and if it's not the right place, you can just quit doing it. But we did learn a strategy. There's uh, an acronym, GAP, Gifts, Abilities, and Passions. What do you care about? Those are your passions. What are your abilities? What do you just know how to do? And then uh, gifts are the places where God makes something look easy for you, that other people look at you and go, well, I don't know how you did it. So that's what we've been. That's a long recap, and this is why you shouldn't have seven-part sermon series. But that's kind of where we've been, and today we're going to wrap it up. Uh, Carla wants us to talk about risk. I want to talk about risk too, but we're going to do that as a whole new series starting in the fall. So we're going to do that later. Uh, But today we're going to wrap it up with Connect. And the reason for connection is because we are part of a connectional church. We believe that we are better together. That's the the title. I don't know if salt and pepper are better together, but they're better as a phrase, right? You don't say salt and bananas or something, right? You say salt and pepper. Um, And so they're better together even if you don't like salt and pepper. So um, we're better together. We're better when we're doing things together. That's true as individuals. It's true as, as uh, congregations. And it's true as denominations. So um, this, is, this is the way it says in the uh, Old Testament. In the Hebrew Scriptures, it says this. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their hard work. If either should fall, one can pick up the other. But how miserable are those who fall and don't have a companion to pick them up? Also, if two lie down together, they can stay warm. But how can anyone stay warm alone? Also, one can be overpowered, but two together can put up resistance. A three-ply cord doesn't easily snap. This is just, it just makes sense, right? Not everything in the Bible is puzzling. This is just, of course, that all makes sense. And, you know, that's because Solomon, the wisest man, except for Jesus who ever lived, said this. So that all makes sense. And Jesus weighed in on this too. Jesus said that he wants us to be unified. As we heard earlier, Jesus knows that the church, the world is going to be looking at us and saying, do they love each other? Because if they do, they're Jesus' disciples. And if they squabble and they have arguments and they're divisive, then they will say they're not Jesus' disciples. So Jesus knew that. And so he actually didn't just give us instructions. He prayed to God on our behalf that we would have unity. And there's a list of scriptures there. I'm not going to go through them all. But Jesus prayed for unity. And since it's something Jesus wants, it's something that just makes sense. We should work for it. So Christians should promote unity in the church. And there's all kinds of ways we can do that. Um, and there's, there's some questions in the program to help you with that. And there's some scriptures to get you started with right there. And if you have to leave, right? If, if I run long and you have to get up and leave... That's the most important part of the sermon right there. Christians should be united. It just makes sense, and Jesus wants it, so we should promote unity. So that's the end of part one of my sermon. But now let's talk brass tacks, okay? Part two of my sermon begins immediately after that, 
And it's this. That's hard. You know, I, I know why Carlos said churches should do this. It's because churches don't do this. And denominations don't do this. Let me, let me illustrate this with a denomination. We'll come back to people. When I first became a Presbyterian a couple of years ago, I was shown this chart. It talked about how the Presbyterian Church USA was formed in 1983 by the merger of two existing denominations, the UPC USA and the PC US. And they were given the nicknames the North and the South because finally, 120 years after the Civil War, the, the two branches of the Presbyterian Church that had split over the issue of slavery were reunited at last. That's the way I was told the story back when I became a Presbyterian. But the reality is a little more complicated because this is what really happened. Um, right before that merger happened in 1981, a bunch of people who said, slavery is not my issue, but I'll tell you what, there's a lot of other things that I can't abide in that group you're forming. And they split off to become the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. That happened in 1981. But in 1973, uh, as the next picture shows, a, a different group uh, split off, a much larger group split off, called, and they formed the Presbyterian Church in America. And since I became a Presbyterian, uh, we have had further uh, divisions. So we now have the Evangelical Covenant Order of Presbyterians down there at the bottom, plus people, uh, congregations have continued to leave for the EPC and the PCA. And it would be nice if that was it. We could just say, well, we are going through a turbulent time in history, but this is Presbyterianism. As the next, as the next diagram shows, this is our DNA, right? This is just what we do, right? So, so uh, sometimes we get back together, but sometimes we split, and that's the end of it. And I hate to tell you Methodists, but it's true about Methodists too. The, you have the same diagram in the Methodist Church, okay? The Evangelical United Brethren and the Methodist Church in the United States, they united in 1968 from parent organizations. And if you're wondering... If you ever drive by a church that says it's an AME church, that's African Methodist Episcopal Church, they are from the Methodist tradition. You drive by a Nazarene church. You drive by a Wesleyan church. You Ultimately, if you drive by an Anglican church or an Episcopal church, they have their own complicated family history because this is what we do. Jesus prays for unity, and we go out and we split. Because unity is hard. Unity is incredibly hard. So, how do we get what Jesus wants? How do, we, how do we honor Jesus' request? How do we do what just makes sense when we talk about it? Two are better than one. How do we get there? Well, I'll tell you the way that the Presbyterian Church is doing it right now. The PCUSA, when I say Presbyterian, I'm talking about one of those mini boxes, the PCUSA. We do it with handcuffs. And I'm not kidding. That is the actual phrase I've used by somebody who likes this idea. They said, we have handcuffs. We have two sets of handcuffs. The first one we put on the pastors. It's called our retirement plan. And so pastors are uh, encouraged to stay in the denomination by the retirement plan. If we had 401ks, there's no telling how many people would be out of here. There just really is. But we have handcuffs. We have a traditional fixed benefits retirement plan. And there are pastors serving in the PCUSA today who would love to leave but don't because they have handcuffs on. And the idea is that if the pastor stays in the church, then the church will stay with him. He won't be creating trouble. He'll be trying to 
tamp out trouble instead of, you know, fan the flames. So that's one set of, head, uh, of handcuffs. But there's another set, because sometimes pastors and churches disagree. And if the church wants to leave, what do we do? Well, we have another set of handcuffs. It's the property clause. And what that says is this. It says, when the postman delivers a, a bill, it goes to Joyce and she pays it. Okay, if there's an electric bill, a heating bill, uh, uh, putting sand in the parking lot bill, bills come here. But if we say we want to leave, we want to go join the ECOP or the EPC, PCA, BPC, OPC, or any of the others, they say, we'll take your church. We'll take all the property. Because we have a property clause. That's the second set of handcuffs. Now, I will tell you, I think that that's a terrible idea. I think it's a wrong idea for theological reasons. And I can go right back to the book of Genesis. There's a, there's a question in the study, in the study materials to help you uh, understand this. But there's a biblical way of apportioning property when you have a disagreement. And this is not it. So I have problems on a theological level. But I'll tell you what, beyond that, I have problems on a practical level. Because what that does, what those handcuffs do, is it guarantees that people who disagree on profound issues are forced to stay together and argue and argue and argue and fight and squabble and argue and argue and argue. And that's what we've been doing for the last two decades. Our church is off mission because all we do is we argue. Too much of the time. And so, just a few verses after Solomon tells us that two are better together, he says, this too is pointless and a chasing after wind. We know unity makes sense, but sometimes we don't know how to get there. So what I want to do is I want to kind of say, if we had a blank sheet of paper and we're trying to figure out how to be unified, how would we do that? What, what can we learn from Scripture to teach us how to be unified? And so what I want to do is I want to look at one of the very first church fights that's recorded in Scripture. It's this fight we just heard about. And let me, let me kind of set the stage. As you're looking at the book um, of Acts, um, as you're finding the book of Acts uh, in, your, in your Scriptures, um, I want to kind of set the stage. What has happened is uh, up to this point, there has been something called the first missionary journey. And I have a map. So I think that's the next picture. Yeah. So uh, two guys, Paul and Barnabas. Whoa, I'm already on. Ah, there. It's got all the features. Okay, Paul and Barnabas, they started out up in Antioch over in the corner. I need a brighter light. So over in the corner there, it says Seleucia and Antioch of Syria. That's their home base. And they went to um, Cyprus's hometown in Cyprus. Uh, uh, Barnabas's hometown in Cyprus. Barnabas was a Cypriot. He, he and Paul traveled to Cyprus to tell people the good news about Jesus there. And they did. And when they got done with um, going around in Cyprus, then they went up north to South Central Asia Minor. So um, uh, kind of like we are to Alaska, they were to what is now modern-day Turkey. So they went up to Pamphylia, and uh, they landed in a place called Perga right there. You see Atalia and then Perga. And at Perga, John Mark, the author of the, the Gospel of John, John Mark said, that's it, I quit. And he bailed out. And he went his own way, and we don't see him in the rest of the book. But Paul and Barnabas, they went around, they saw Derby and Lystra, Iconium, all the rest of it. 
Then they went home to in Antioch. And when they got home to Antioch, they found out something that surprised them. While they were away spreading the good news about Jesus throughout uh, parts of the world that had never heard about him, some people had come down from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is actually down here. I don't know. They say, they say Jerusalem's down here somewhere. And because Jerusalem is built on a mountain, whenever you go away from Jerusalem, it doesn't matter where you go, north, south, whatever, it's down. So some people came down from Jerusalem and they said, we're glad to hear you people in Antioch have heard about Jesus. There's just one thing you've got to do now. You've got to become Jews. And Paul and Barnabas get back and they say, wait a minute, we didn't give you that instruction. And they say, okay, tell you what, let's go sort this out. Let's go to Jerusalem. Let's get on one page. Let's get united. So they go to Jerusalem in what is called the First Ecumenical Council. And that's what we read about in, in Acts 15. All the leaders of the church, everybody representing the, the, the viewpoints, people who knew Jesus personally, they got together and they said, do the Gentiles have to become Jews? And they wrote a letter saying, no, they don't. And so Paul and Barnabas went back to Antioch. They brought with them the letter, but they also brought with them Silas and Judas. And they got back to uh, Antioch and they said, you don't have to become Jews. So if you're not Jewish, then... This letter applies to you. So that's kind of what's happened. There's been this great success. The church is unified. We're all on one page. Everybody agrees about everything. It's awesome. And it lasts all the way to the next verse. And, you know, it would be great. It would be great. <laughs> it would be wonderful if it was these people who, who were the troublemakers, the ones who went around telling this stuff, if they had the argument. But they don't have an argument. They don't even have an argument with Paul and Barnabas. The argument is with Paul and Barnabas. They say, hey, you know what? We've been sorting this stuff out in Antioch and down in or up in Jerusalem. And the reason we're doing that is because while we were away from Antioch, some people came in behind us and caused some trouble. But you know what? We've been away from Cyprus and Pamphylia for a while, too. Maybe we should go check up on what's happening there. And Barnabas says, good idea. Let's bring Mark. And Paul says, good idea. Let's don't. And they can't agree on whether or not to bring Mark. And so our argument is over whether or not to bring Mark. So this unity in the church, it lasts all of one verse. They immediately get into an argument, and we read that the argument uh, is so sharp that they separated. It says, uh, the argument, um, the disagreement became so sharp that they parted company. No handcuffs, no property clause, no retirement plan. They just parted company. How can that possibly lead to unity? And yet, that's what they do. So, if you're following along in the outline, the second point is, you know, sometimes it's not that it's right. It's not that there's a right and a wrong. It's just practical. It's just practical to separate from other believers. So they do. Mark and Barnabas go to Cyprus. Paul and uh, Silas, they go through Cilicia, so they're going on the land route back up to Pamphylia. So they go through Cilicia. And actually, we find out later on in the scriptures that this is a pivotal event because after they get done in Pamphylia, 
Paul, instead of going back to Antioch yet once again, he says, let's go west. You know, go west, young evangelist. So he goes to Asia, what the area called Asia, Asia Minor, we would say. He goes to Asia and ultimately experiences a call to Europe. That there's, he, has a, he has a vision of a man in Macedonia, which is in Europe. And as far as we know, Paul is the first missionary to go to Europe. And it's because he and Barnabas have split up that he's able to do that. So that's kind of the rest of the book of Acts. And what's interesting is that when these two get into an argument, they don't sit there and say, well, let's sort out Mark. Instead, what they do is they say, what are we really trying to do? What is their goal here? Our goal is to check up on the churches, make sure that they know the good news about Jesus, make sure that they have a correct understanding of the good news about Jesus. So what they do is they stay focused on the mission. And I think that's a great lesson for anybody who's experiencing trouble in their denomination or in their church, to just stay focused on the mission. The what and the why. The what is the, is the great commandment. Jesus told us to make disciples. And the why is because everybody deserves a chance to hear the good news that God doesn't hate them. You know, they look at their life, they look at the mess they've made of it or the mess that somebody else made of their life, and they say, this is happening because God hates me. They listen to the voices in their relationships that tell them, you're a screw-up. Your mother was like this. You're always going to be like this. And they say, God hates me. They listen to the tapes in their heads. And they say, God hates me. And everybody deserves a chance to hear the good news that God doesn't hate them. God loves them. God wants to spend eternity with them. So Paul and Barnabas stay focused on the mission. The what? To go and tell the good news about Jesus. To make disciples. And the why is because people deserve a chance to hear the good news about Jesus, that God doesn't hate them. So they stay focused on the mission, the why, and the what. And at this point, Barnabas disappears from Scripture. He's only mentioned one more time. I'll tell you about that in a moment. But at this point, we lose sight of Barnabas because the book of Acts is written by a friend of Paul's, a man who travels along with Paul, a man named Luke. And we, he, we, his, he comes into the story in a couple of chapters. But what's interesting to me about Barnabas is who's right and who's wrong. What, what's interesting to me is the scriptures don't give us enough reason to make a decision. But I would encourage you, if you've got a study Bible, look at the footnotes because we want to know who's right and who's wrong. And the footnotes in your Bible will often take sides. I looked at a whole bunch of Bibles this week, and a lot of them took sides. And I remember one in particular. It said Barnabas should have yielded to Paul because Paul was an apostle, and Barnabas was just a disciple. He said, Paul was right, Barnabas was wrong. Now, I think that that's making a lot of soup with not much broth, but, but let's assume that that footnote is right. And I'm not saying it is. Let's assume that's right. What does that tell us about Barnabas? It tells us Barnabas had a rule. Do what the apostles tell you. They say something, it goes. And he had a person. He had John Mark. He knew John Mark. John Mark was his cousin. And he said, John Mark really screwed up. He bailed out on us in Perga. But you know what? John Mark needs a second chance. 
and I'm going to give him a second chance, even though the rule says, obey the apostle. And I think in doing that, if that's what happened, Barnabas is most like Jesus, because that's what Jesus did over and over and over again. We all broke the rules. Jesus came for us because he cared more about us than he did the rules. He said, I'll take care of the rules. Barnabas did the same thing. Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Jesus, over and over and over again, went to people and said, you're a terrible sinner. I love you. I'm going to die for you. Barnabas did the same thing. He said, there's still hope for Mark. And I wonder if that is really at the root of our problems as denominations. Both the Methodist Church and the Presbyterian Church are fragmenting over the issue primarily. I mean, a lot of issues, but but primarily human sexuality. And I think the response that people make to that is they say one of two things. They say, let's loosen up the, do- the, the doctrine. We're going to interpret the Bible in light of our conviction that God loves homosexuals. And other people saying, but without the doctrine, where are you? We cannot loosen up the doctrine. And maybe what we need to do is keep the doctrine airtight, but love the people. We need to be so loving of everybody, gay or straight, LGBTQA, whatever. If Jesus loves them, it's our calling to love them too. And I would encourage us to be like Barnabas, at least in this area, to say, I know what the rules say, but I love this person. I'm not going to monkey with the rules, but I love this person and I'm going to go on loving this person. And I wonder, if we could do that, if we could be like Barnabas in that one area, if our denominational squabbling would be a lot simpler to deal with. So, number four, since people count more than doctrine, since people trump doctrine, since people are greater than doctrine, be inconsistent. Be out and proud as an inconsistent Christian. I love people more than I love doctrine. Be like Jesus. I'm going to wrap it up. I said, this is, this is the end, right? We don't see Barnabas again except one more time. And that's interesting because we know that Luke, who wrote this book, was a traveling companion of Paul. He had all kinds of time with Paul on the road, walking from one town to another all across Asia Minor, to hear the whole story, to get the dirt, to tell us how wrong Barnabas was. And he doesn't tell us. And that tells me one of two things. Either Luke isn't telling us, or Paul never told him. Wouldn't that be wonderful if we could do the same thing? If when we got into an argument with another Christian, that instead of spending the next year or ten years dishing the dirt on how wrong they were, we could simply say, God bless them in their ministry. You know, they're going to Cyprus, I'm going to Pamphylia. God bless them. The last time we hear about Barnabas in Scripture is later on, much later, after Paul has spent some time in a town called Corinth, and he writes a letter to the church in Corinth, and he says, he talks approvingly about Barnabas's ministry. He treats Barnabas as a colleague in ministry, 
not as a schismatic heretic who needs to be shunned. He says, what about Barnabas? Me and Barnabas. Wouldn't it be great if we could treat Christians the same way? And Paul did the same thing with with Mark, too. Ultimately, Paul and Mark reconciled somehow or other. And there are scriptures there. You can look them up. But Paul and Barnabas couldn't get along. And so they separated. And we know ultimately they got back together. And I think that is so much better, both in my head and my heart, what Scripture teaches us, how to deal with a fight in the church, is that it may be practical to separate. That if we focus on the mission, the what and the why, that will help us. And since people count more than doctrine, don't be a doctrine Nazi. Care more about people the way Jesus does. And if you can't be together, be nice. If you can't be nice, be quiet. You know, I told you that these things have personal applications. You can probably think of some. There's probably relationships that you feel stuck in. Maybe you should quit feeling stuck in it. Maybe you should say, I don't have to be in this relationship. And maybe you can find healing and ultimately be back in that relationship. And finally, as a pastor, I will tell you, churches are filled with people who are stuck in that church. And I don't know what sticks them in that church. But the church is trying to move in a new direction, and they are in a dissident minority. Whatever that direction is, the church is is trying to do something different. And they say, over my dead body, we will never change as long as I'm in this church. And they dig in their heels, and they fight, and they fuss, and they prevent themselves from going to their own Cilicia, going to their own Cyprus, going to another church where they would be welcome and a valued member of the church. Because they say, I will die over this thing. We must have the stained glass windows. Whatever it is, whatever the thing that they're going, the the hill they've elected to die on. You know, just as in denominations, sometimes it's practical to separate. So, This church, some other church, if you're ever in a church and you find yourself saying, over my dead body, you know, you might get your way. Instead, go to another church. Be blessed there. Bless them. Don't be handcuffed to your job. Don't be handcuffed to your church. Don't be handcuffed to your denomination. Let's pray. Loving God, We know you prayed for unity. We know that Jesus died and told us right before his death that people would look at the church and they would make judgments about him based on us. So first and foremost and always, Lord, we pray for unity. Help us to see trouble. Help us to work to prevent it. But Lord, we are so bent by sin. It has... It has worked such damage in our psyches. Sometimes we cannot get along. So, Lord, I pray you would guide us by the example of Paul and Barnabas. Show us how to separate gracefully. Show us how not to stay in relationships that are, that are disastrous and poisoned. Help us to be mission-minded. 
And Lord, help us, even after we've separated, to look for the good, speak only good, of the people we've separated from. That in your time we may find healing and restored relationships. We pray all this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.